Hey, it's Gabriel, and this time I've got the real Alex with me, not some uh, past fake version that I creepily played <laughs> over the top <laughs> to help me in the I swear, I'm back. <laughs> and it's actually me. Usually when we do these intros, we give a bunch of backstory about what you're about to hear and hype it up a bit. This time, Alex, you weren't there. Yep. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't want to ruin it because like the whole point of this is that you haven't heard it before. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's pretty fair. I mean, I was just out braving the wilds of Tasmania and now to come back to get to hear this. I'm pretty excited. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you've had a good life. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> uh, this will be my first time hearing all this, so we're going to be cutting in and out and you'll be getting my live reactions to this news for the first time. <laughs> yeah, we're turning into a react podcast now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, similar style to usual, just Alex has no idea what he's just heard. Yeah, I mean, that's most of the time anyway, so <laughs> it shouldn't be anything new. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, since I can't really hype this up much, all I'm going to say is that there is a massive update to the story at this at the end. I guess if you're hearing this, you've seen the title, you know what it's about. You're more in the know than Alex is, but there is a massive update at the end of this episode. Probably one of the biggest legitimate, like newsworthy updates we've given in an episode so far. Uh, and that's pretty much all I can say. I'm <laughs> feeling really out of the loop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's one of, uh, it was a, r- a massive story to start with and there is a big update to it. So we'll just stop vamping and get into this because I don't know anything else to say. <laughs> Let's get into it. <laughs> Alex isn't sitting on this one because I haven't told him I'm doing these updates. So hopefully I'll spring it on him when the mics are on and get a good reaction out of him. Oh, cool. Um, so it should be a, yeah, a bit of fun for us to do. Yeah. And so, yeah, it'll be super quick, like 10 minutes just to, on what's happened. Uh, yeah, since we last spoke. Hey, it's us cutting in. Do you have a guess? Do you know who this is? I don't know yet. That's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll keep rolling. <laughs> but yeah, um, are you happy with everything on your side? Like, you you good to go? Yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah. yeah. Wait, is this Ross? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that took me way too long to figure out. I was like, I swear <laughs> to God, that sounds British. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> It is Ross, who uh, specializes in studying the Regent Honey Eater, the, uh, well, kind of semi-famous now songbird that, uh, and the story we covered was from episode five, I think, about them basically losing their song as a critically endangered bird. Oh, I'm super excited now because last we heard was like super depressing. (laughs) Yeah, super depressing. So there's, when I say there's a big update, there was a very big update at the end of this, but (laughs) I started talking with Ross about um, the field work that he'd literally just gotten back from and had been doing for the months, like between our interview and when I picked up with him again uh, in the breeding season for 2021. So yeah, he told me all about that. Oh, awesome. I'm super excited. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's start with like, um, since the interview, you've, you've been doing a bunch of field work, monitoring the breeding season for these honey eaters. How'd, how'd that go? Oh, it's been a really interesting season, actually. Um, we we started off and we were really downbeat. We did the first probably three or four weeks of field work and didn't find any birds. And then we sort of lucked in on a couple of aggregations and we probably ended up finding about maybe 80, 80 wild birds this year, which is pretty decent. Yeah, it was it was it was interesting. Like we had we had I think around nineteen successful nests so far, which is pretty good, but. We've had real trouble with the weather, as I'm sure a lot of people doing field work have had this year. So um, we 
obviously, like a lot of these birds are nesting along the edges of rivers and the rivers have flooded and we haven't been able to access nests. And then the second clutches, like often what regional hunters will do is they'll, if they if they sort of fledge successfully, they'll try again and, and have a second brood. So the second broods that were on the go in sort of late this, uh, late November, early December, a lot of those got washed out by the rains. Mm. So um, it, uh, field work's kind of come to a bit more of an abrupt end than we'd hoped for us. Um, but having said that, the the captive breeding program is is going really well. So yeah, the, those guys are kind of holding the holding the fort at the moment. Alrighty. So it's had it's sort of a double hit thing because I'm assuming there's probably still some lag effects from the fires as well in parts of the habitat. Yeah, it wasn't too bad this year. I mean, the birds have there was a lot of um, so Blakey's red gum had a really good flowering year this year. Okay. Um, it's usually we always often think of it as like a not like a prime region honey to feed tree, but um, like maybe a secondary tree. But this year they seem to have had a real good flowering year and plowed for for longer than they normally do. And so a lot of nests were in association with with those trees this year, which is good. Um, and a lot of those places didn't didn't burn that we've we've had the birds in this year. So um, I'm sure there is some lag effect of the fires, but yeah, where the birds were this year. There's no sort of no impact of those those fires. The captive breeding program then, how's can do you can you describe what's happened with that recently yeah, and sort of what sort of numbers they've been looking at and things like that? Yeah, there's um so the so so bird life and New South Wales government, um Taronga Zoo, other parties involved, including I think you know, Minda River, local Aboriginal Land Council, local land services as well. Um they coordinated a release of I think it was about fifty fifty five. Roughly 55 regional eaters from the zoo earlier this year, and they've had pretty good survival so far. It's up, it's up around 70% of the birds are, are still being seen every day, and a lot of those are nesting. And there's actually wild birds around in the area as well. And we, I think, last week they had their first um, young bird successfully fledged from a from a captive pair of pair of birds. So that was a pretty historic moment for the um, for yeah. The, for the zoo breeding program, the first the first juvenile fledged in the in the wild in New South Wales from from the captive parents. So that's that's good, but I think um, the forecast coming up again, there's something like eleven active nests at the moment, either with eggs or or nestlings being fed. Um, but the forecast for the for the Hunter Valley is still pretty uh, hit and miss. So we're really hoping that um, a lot of these active nests can survive the the dodgy the next bout of dodgy weather that's going to come yeah. in, in the next sort of week or two. Yeah, it's funny because I was talking with um, Daniela yesterday about the um, glossy black cockatoos on um, Kangaroo Island because yeah. they got hit by fires really badly. But the the rain has actually helped them because it's pushed back a little bit against the loss of food. But it's funny that in this case, it's almost like it's pushed back too far. There's too much rain well, and it washes so, out these it, nests. It's bittersweet. It's ridiculous really, um, Gabriel, because like these birds they absolutely need the rains to come for the trees to flower you know yeah um and then the ironic thing is that the trees are flowering and we get so much rain that it washes away the nest it's like the birds can't they just can't get a win at the moment you know? <laughs> yeah uh, yeah hey it's us jumping in yeah so so kind of we're doing all right uh <laughs> there was too much rain and the nest get washed away these poor birds <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting hit from every side. Yeah, it was. It's oh not looking God. great. But yeah, but then um, I so I I kind of got sidetracked with Ross a bit because I'd just been too 
Taronga Zoo relatively recently when recording this and had seen the honey eaters there and just sort of fanned out a little bit about how cool it was. Nice. Um, but within that, we got onto the work of um, PhD student Daniel Appleby, who's the one doing the teaching them how to sing. Oh. And so I also asked Ross how that project's going as well. Cool. And so the PhD project you mentioned with the teaching them how to sing again, basically, and sing the right songs. Is there has anything ha- much happened with that? Because I know it was pretty recent uh, when we spoke to you last that they'd started playing the recordings and stuff in the in the Averys and things like yeah. that. Has anything happened on that front? Yeah. So Dan's still in the process of, of analyzing the data and he started a second year of experiments. Um, so what's really cool at the moment is that um, – I don't want to ruin too much of his results, but there was there's definitely something going on there in terms of teaching them um, to to change their songs. But this year, what we're trying to do is is we're trying to reduce the ratio of tutors to learners, as it were. So mm-hmm. I think last year we had maybe fifteen to twenty juvenile males in in, in one one aviary with a couple of the wild males nearby. This year, we've really brought it down so that we only have maybe two or three juvenile males in the aviary and the two wild males and more cool playback. So we're kind of in a situation now where if it's ever going to work, it's going to work in this this particular circumstance. Yeah, give them every shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, those, 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 those birds now are probably between maybe six weeks and 10 weeks old. They're still just making kind of very juvenile squawky noises at the moment. But um, yeah, hopefully within the next sort of two or three months, they'll start um, yeah, developing songs that we, uh, we're hoping they'll, they'll, they'll learn. Yeah. To, to get those numbers then, does that mean you have to go out and pull some wild birds back into the captive population? Um, the last birds were brought in from the wild, I think, was 2019, I think. Um, there's two, two males and a female were brought in. You would you would need to in future probably to to maintain just sort of the genetic integrity of the of the flock. But um, what we're hoping is that these two males that we've got in in in, in Taronga Zoo at the moment that sing proper songs will will really be the the key two birds that can enable us to teach the youngsters. All the pressure onto yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no pressure. Literally, all I can picture. <laughs> Hogwarts, but for birds and teaching them how to sing. <laughs> <laughs> We're cutting back in, by the way. It's us. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like two birds are responsible for teaching Ooh. like every captive bred young male coming through the population to keep its whole species alive. That's, that's a lot of pressure on two. Imagine if you picked up a mumble bird, you know, like <laughs> the mumble happy feet version of, of region honey eaters. Yeah. It's a dud bird. Can't sing. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe it gets stage fright in front of that many birds. <laughs> Walk up to this bird and be like, your job for the rest of your life is to go from cage to cage teaching teenagers how to sing. And your entire, <laughs> your entire species future rests on it. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, still cool. I was going to say, it's, so, it's just so cool that the song's so important in the species survival and the way they're keeping it alive or trying to at least <laughs> trying to trying to yeah uh but then so we we talked for a while about some other stuff but eventually i we got towards the end and i just asked you know is there anything else on the horizon with region honey eaters that that you guys are looking out for or that we should not know about and um ross just mentioned something sort of offhand that that was coming up um is there anything else that you think is worth bringing up that's sort of happened in the last six months on region honey eaters um, or your work 
Yeah, we've done, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know briefly. We've got we've done a population viability analysis. So uh, okay, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you last time or not, but it's um, the population models that um, basically predict the the trajectory of the species under various scenarios. So what we've been able to do is take all the estimates of, of like key demographic parameters like breeding success and survival and of not just the wild birds, but also the captive birds. So it's, it's been a real synthesis of all the population monitoring that's gone on over the last 20 years. And uh, the manuscript has just been accepted for publication. So oh, amazing. Um, I won't spoil it too much, but um, <laughs> hopefully within the next month or two, um, we'll have some pretty um, interesting results coming out to, to, sh- to show the, the tra- trajectory of the population under under business as usual, and then under various sort of management scenarios of sort of nest protection and, and, and captive breeding and reintroduction. So, awesome. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled for it, and I'll, I'll let you know when it's out. Yeah, please do. We'll, we'll share it, and we'll, we'll do another little update at the start of one of our episodes or something, because that's, yeah, that'd be cool to, to follow up on. Hey, we're jumping in again. So, Alex, uh, I recorded that interview with Ross on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve? 2021. <laughs> Christmas Eve, he oh somehow found time on Christmas Eve to, to talk for like 15 minutes and give that little update. And he mentioned this as like, oh, this will be coming sometime early 2022. It's mid-January 2022 now, Alex. Yeah. Uh, and about one week ago, a paper got published on the population viability of region honeyeaters. <laughs> and a few hours before we're recording this, I called Ross back up <laughs> and got him to give me the rundown on what that actually said. What? <laughs> At the time, it just sort of worked out because we were originally going to release all these updates together in one big start of year thing. And then there were there were too much together. There were too many updates. Uh, and so we split them out into these separate episodes. And it just happened that this paper got released way earlier than they were expecting it to. And he had time to talk about it again. Hold on. You got to talk to him not once, but twice without me. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Never take a holiday again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what we're going to do now is jump into this interview. Uh, We're going to let this run a little bit longer in between us cutting in uh, than we have for these first bits because it's quite a major update, but we'll be popping in once or twice before the end of the episode. And just to quickly recap before we get into it, so that first part was recorded end of 2021, an update of what had gone on between our interview and the end of the year. Uh, and this is the paper that's come out uh, right at the start of 2022, which is this huge population viability analysis, basically playing on, do you remember when we asked Ross, do you think this species is going to go extinct? Yep. <laughs> and he was one of the first guests to say, yeah, I think so. Yep. That moment's going to burn into my brain. <laughs> this is the data checking that and trying to figure out if that's real. Very exciting. <laughs> Look, we don't really need to do much of the like intro, outro stuff because we've got that from last time. Um, yeah. so do you want to just jump into it? Um, sure. cause I, I saw, I think a few days after we posted what was going to be the whole update episode together, a few days after that, I saw your tweets pop up of the new study, uh, and was like, Oh, I got to get back on to talk about this since we're releasing it later now. Um, so can you, yeah, can you talk through what, what this paper is? Cause you, you flagged it in the, when we talked about it a little while ago, but yeah, you can actually, you know, talk about it without the embargo now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it came out a lot quicker than we thought it was going to actually. So uh-huh. it, was a, it was a bit of a surprise. They emailed Rob just after Christmas and said, "Oh, you need to get these, you know, check the PDF and get it back to us within a week." And yeah, just first week back, um, it was published. So that's good. Um, a lot quicker than expected. So yeah. So basically, that paper was a 
a synthesis of basically all the all the field that we've been doing over the last six years through the through the national monitoring program um, to be able to kind of estimate these population parameters that we need to um, build the population models. Um, and so we've combined the data that we've got from our own monitoring with monitoring from um, the releases of the, the zoo bred birds over the last sort of 10 years or so, and also previous sort of field research on the wild population from the 1990s. Um, and then the idea is with those estimates, we can kind of look at what's going to happen to the population if we do nothing or if we're doing what we're doing at the moment and what we would need to do to try and stop them from going extinct. So that was basically what we did. And I mean, the you think you were one of the first guests on the podcast to pretty heavily say that you don't think this species is going to see out the next few decades or so. Did this confirm that? Deny that? What was the what did the data say? It pretty much confirms it. Yeah. So so the models that if uh, if we look at the the current rates of kind of breeding success. Um, um, and survival and the impact that the zoo brood bred birds are currently having, uh, we basically see that the Blue Mountains population, well, the whole population is likely to be extinct within 20 years. Um, and the small number of birds that are kind of hanging on in northern Victoria and northern New South Wales could be gone within five years. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's not surprising. I mean, I've been out there witnessing this for the last sort of six, six or seven years myself. Um, but in some ways, even though it's sobering, it's good that the, the, the models have kind of cons- confirmed our, our suspicions. So. <laughs> hey, it's us again. <laughs> A little part of me was really hoping that we're going to be wrong. And yeah, that was brutal. <laughs> yeah. Confirmed everything at worst five years. Yeah, that's uh, that's some depressing <laughs> fun at all. Need some more recovery time or should we keep going? Uh, no, we got this. It'll be fine. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it gets a little bit better, I guess. Part of the research was just going, okay, what's going to happen to this population? And they uh, sort of modeled that out over different intervals. What they also did, though, is model different scenarios. So same as you do with like climate change stuff. You do business as usual. You do best case scenarios, worst case scenarios. So they also did that. And so I uh, got Ross to sort of talk through, you know, What's the, what's the forecast under the different scenarios? I was really fishing for some hope. He's like, <laughs> give us something. <laughs> yeah. And you also, I think, modeled some of the sort of different scenarios as well. Were there any realistic looking scenarios where, you know, it doesn't plummet down into around the zero territory of birds? Well, with, with, if, we, if we're able to kind of protect nests from predation and boost the breeding success rate, um, so that's one of the main problems we found is less than one in three. Um, nesting attempts is successful and so um, what we need to do is kind of find ways to increase the proportion to the birds that attempt to nest that actually fledge any young mm-hmm. and then with the zoo bred birds we need to try and increase the fitness of those birds and increase their ability to breed successfully in the wild so there's good evidence that um, they, the majority of zoo bred birds can, re- can survive that sort of critical first period after their release, but the main problem really is trying to get those birds to breed in the wild successfully, not just at a comparable rate to the, what the wild birds have got at the moment, but even even higher. So, so that's that's going to be the challenge. Um, and there's no doubt that the kind of the, the zoo breeding program is is having a positive impact. But the problem is 
some of the scenarios that we modeled were what happens if you kind of stop captive breeding within 10 years or 20 years. Yeah. Um, and then kind of unsurprisingly, to some extent, you find that the population kind of starts declining again as soon as you, as soon as you take away those key interventions. So. Right. So it's like the captive breeding is pretty much the thing that's keeping it afloat at those low numbers at the moment. Exactly. It's basically papering over the cracks to some yeah. extent. Um, and what we tried to do was, um, I can't remember whether we talked about it before, but all these species that live in these flocks, they're kind of they're dependent upon group living. And what mm-hmm. we think is this, they're suffering from this thing called an alley effect where you have lower survival and lower breeding success when you're living in kind of unnaturally small small groups. And so what we tried to build into these models was some sort of function whereby each individual has higher breeding success and higher survival if there's more of them around. And the idea is that we try to kind of boost the numbers back up through zoo breeding and release and through nest protection to the point where the birds naturally start occurring in these bigger flocks where, they, where they're able to um, sort of sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we could kind of get the models to achieve that was kind of annual releases of I think about 100, but 100 zoo bred birds, nest protection to the point where each female fledges an average two juveniles per year and it, and crucially sort of increasing the carrying capacity in the environment. So the number of regional monitors that it theoretically can, can survive in the wild and the way that we would increase the carrying capacity, there's three ways. First of all is obviously habitat restoration. The whole reason these birds are in such trouble is because they've lost so much habitat over the last sort of century. So habitat restoration, habitat protection is going to be a big one, you know, cr- protecting these crucial areas of, of breeding habitat that we know is still out there. Um, and another way that we can kind of increase carrying capacity is managing noisy miners because a lot of the habitat that regional hunters would use, they can't access because they're dominated by miners anyway. So that would be the sort of three-pronged approach. Uh-huh. And from those, those first numbers, there are 100 birds released a year and two birds per female fledging a year. How does that compare to what's happening now? Well, at the moment, current rates of um, release of zebra birds is probably on average one sort of 50, 50 to 80 every couple of years. So one of the challenges will be is that now that the the reintroduction program has kind of shifted from northern Victoria to um, the Blue Mountains, it's much harder to confidently identify somewhere to be able to release the bird. So if the conditions are good like they are now, we can say, well, you know, the lower hunt is going to go off and it's going to be great. Um, but when we start getting drought conditions, it's going to be challenging to find places to release the birds. So 100 birds every every year, even though that's what required it, like in practice, that's going to be extremely hard to achieve. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it, and the same thing with the with the nest protection. You know, like we've shown what we need to do, but actually translating that into um, you know outcomes is extremely challenging because not only do you need to find like a large proportion of the birds early in the season, like early in the breeding season, which is extremely hard considering they're the range of these birds and the fact that they don't nest in the same places, um, you know, all the time anyway. And and then to be able to protect those successfully is, um, it's going to be tough, but yeah, that's basically what we think is, is going to be needed if we uh, want to stop these birds disappearing within the next 20 years. Mm. Do you know if the sort of timeframes that sort of effort has to go on for, but um, until it hopefully gets past that barrier somewhere of them being able to, you know, have the numbers there on their own? Well, initially we, we ran the models for 20 years 
Um, and then um, part of the review process, we were asked to kind of extend the simulation period up to 40 years. Right. So we we, we assume from, from the models that um, we would need to probably implement these intensive actions for 20 years. Right. So 20 years of boosting number of birds by a decent chunk, helping the females that are there, identifying them early and getting a bunch of habitat protected and, and cleared of noisy miners. Yeah. It's a, it's a big effort. Is that, exactly. do, you think that, do you think that'll happen? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends. It really depends. I mean, well, I don't want to get too political, but um, if you compare the amount of money that's spent on species conservation and, and ecosystem restoration and maintenance in Australia relative to things like defence budgets, I think it was just last week that the government announced $3 billion for new tanks. Mm-hmm. Um it's not like the the money that would be required isn't available. And it's not like, I mean, apart from, if, if we're talking about doing things like habitat restoration, habitat protection, those aren't actions that are only going to benefit region hunters, even noisy mine management. They're not, they're not kind of species-specific wastes of money if it all goes tits up. You know, like they're, they're things that, that will benefit the entire kind of ecosystem. So I think... It will be interesting to see now we've basically said to the decision makers, whoever they may be, that this is what's going to be required. It'll be interesting to see what response we get. Yeah. For sure. The problem is, you know, like a, all, a lot of conservation funding is is based on political cycles. So to, to get funds that were to do work beyond sort of three or four years at a time is extremely challenging. So. Um, it would really require, and this isn't just for regionalizers, this is for all, all conservation. It would require kind of a complete sort of paradigm shift in how conservation sort of is funded, really. For sure. It just feels like a, a species that's sort of caught, just gotten caught up in all the different like political, environmental, and social sides of things. And it's going to be a bit of mm. an example of how a lot of other species are going to be treated. Like it seems to be one of these case studies, and can we actually mm. stop a species from going extinct? Exactly. Is the will there? Exactly, and, and that's what it comes down to. Basically, is the, is the will that is the will there? That's 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 basically it. Yeah. Hey, it's us. Poo. It's <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah, that's a it's a decent amount of effort. On a side note, yeah, do you reckon he gets away with saying tits up all the time because he's a bird ecologist? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You got to find the silver linings when you've just been told a species is probably going to. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. Whew. Yeah, that's a lot of, a lot of work. It's uh, I mean, it's, it's grim news. It's grim news. But at least there's a possibility, I suppose. Right? I suppose. And that was pretty much where Ross and I left it for that follow up. Follow up to the follow up, <laughs> I guess. Uh, <laughs> for, on the region, Hanita. Uh, but there was a, a chunk that we cut out of the first interview where I asked Ross, thinking that was going to be the last time we spoke to him for a while. I asked him <laughs> to you know go through. What can you do to help a honey eater? You know, how do you identify one again? Just go through those basics so that after hearing after hearing that last little chunk of our species is going to go extinct most likely. If you are concerned, and particularly if you are around the areas that region honey eaters do occur or can occur in, this should help just settle the nerves a little bit and give you something to channel that anxiety into. Just that last little bit of hope to hold on to. Yeah, just to finish up then, I mean, we, we touched on this in the original interview, but especially over the summer months and with the rainy season and things like that, is there anything people can do to uh, to help honey eaters out, especially if they're in areas where they might 
uh, you know, use their habitat? Yeah, well, keep your eyes up for them. I mean, there are still birds out there, um, especially if you're in the sort of Great Blue Mountains area. Um, they often do turn up in, in, in weird places. You know, suburban Queensland happens now and again. Um, places like Armadale and Western Sydney this year um, had birds okay. turn up. So um, I guess the, the most important thing is if, if you do see them or if you think you've seen them, try and get a photograph of them and, and, and let bird life know. And then we will be able to follow up and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. A quick recap for um, for people who haven't seen a photo of them. Uh, what are they looking for for a region honey eater? Uh, they're looking for um, a sort of med- a small to medium sized bird um, with a really fantastic bright yellow tail and sort of black and yellow wings and this amazing um, scalloped yellow and white and black chest as well. Awesome. Well, um, thanks so much for chatting again. No, no problem, everyone. Episode 15 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turbul, Yagra and Gurungai people. We pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, and before we get into the rest of the outro, if you want to double check what a region honey eater looks like, uh, if you're on a, a podcast player that shows the little image that we attach to each episode, you should just be able to see one in that. Otherwise, there's plenty of photos and videos of the birds on our Instagram page. Thanks to Ross and some of his mates who sent us some awesome stuff. Big, big thanks to Ross for joining me twice to talk about <laughs> the updates to this species. Give Life on the Brink a rating, review, follow, or whatever it is you can do on your podcast app of choice. Thanks to everyone for asking questions for all the interviews we're doing. We've got a bunch more coming up at the end of the month, so keep your eye on our Instagram stories if you want to submit your own. And that's at Life on the Brink podcast. If you're looking for some more full non-update type episodes, there are a heap already up wherever you're hearing this. Plus, we're kicking into season two in February, and there's one final update episode sliding into your podcast feed in two weeks' time. Thanks to Angus Bazana for running the website. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. (laughs) 